Okay, I'm ready. Okay, excellent. You can uh, ask me a question or interrupt me at any time, if you like. Okay, start off by telling me a little bit about yourself. Yes, sure. So, um, I think we are kindred souls. Uh, I have also been fired as a teacher for exercising virtue, is what I would call it, as I would describe your situation. You are basically just being virtuous. You're mm -hmm. being a standard Catholic, and uh, you were fired. And uh, I was fired for complimenting one of my students, and uh, they called it, you know, sexual harassment, you know, against a female and all this stuff. Totally made it up. So my career as a teacher in America lasted about four months. My career as a psychologist lasted about one month. I was fired for opening the door in the wrong way. That's not symbolism. That's the actual story that happened. <laughs> so, uh, but I love teaching. And um, a few uh, months or years later, I uh, read the, oh, this is just one year later, uh, when I was about 24, I read the Bhagavad Gita. And then I had a profound mystical experience uh, with uh, Paramatma, the super soul himself. And um, then I found myself in Thailand, and then Vietnam, and then China. And I've been staying here ever since. Uh, it's a good culture, and I'm, basically I'm allowed to teach here. And okay. that's, that's good enough for me. You're teaching English? Yeah, yeah, I'm teaching English. Uh, I've taught all ages, and uh, I'm hoping to start teaching ethos or Bhagavad Gita, you know, anything that's a bit more, you know, with substance. But for paying the bills, English is great. Okay. Are you, uh, do you speak Chinese? Yeah, I speak, um, I'd say, upper beginner, lower intermediary level. Okay. Good. Okay. Fire away. Cool. Cool. So uh, I figured we'd start out with Genesis in ancient China. That's a good place to start. So this is the, I just discovered this a few weeks ago. This is the best example of logos in history I've ever seen. This is amazing. Um, so this, the, the uh, important stories of Genesis are actually codified into the Chinese characters themselves. Have you seen or heard about this before? No, no. I, I know about the Tao. I've heard about the Tao, but that's all I know about. Okay, this is, you'll absolutely love this. Okay, so this is the biggest smoking gun. I've got a few more characters of, that are my favorite, but uh, um, can you see the cursor here? I do. Yeah, I see it. Okay, so this means tree. So we have one tree and then another tree two trees next to each other, and a woman underneath. This means lust or greed or a strong desire. So I'm, I, I think by now you know which part of the Genesis this refers to. Yes. Of course, this is Eve and under the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, this is the biggest smoking gun because for not just ancient Chinese people, but for any person at all, to write a pictograph to show lust or greed using two trees and a woman, what are the odds that that, that could happen without hearing the Genesis story? So give me a number. What are the odds? 
I have not. I'm not a gambler. <laughs> you don't have to make up the odds yourself. <laughs> but it does okay, seem interesting. I'll, yeah, I'll say like negative a thousand percent or something. So this is a similar character, two trees, and then this bottom character means to reveal or revelation. So the revelation of the two trees, this means to forbid. And uh, this character is still in use today in modern Chinese. Um, this other one is, is archaic. They don't use this anymore. But it's still in the dictionary. Ah, now this one is really interesting. This means naked. So the left character means clothing. And then the right character means fruit. So when you eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you lose your clothing and you're naked. This is another smoking gun to me because if you don't know the Genesis story, how can you, um, why would you write fruit next to clothing to show naked? It doesn't make much sense, right? Right. And oh, this, okay, so here we are at the tower, the Tower of Babel. So I'll, this one is a bit more complicated. I'll do it stroke by stroke. So we start out with people, that means people, the number one, and then a mouth. So this means the people speaking one language, united. So this character here, this means unite. People speaking one language, that means unite. And then... On top here, this one means grass. And then this one means clay. So the people were united with one language. They put grass and clay together to build the tower, the Tower of Babel. And here is the word for divide. This is very common character. You can see that it's the root word for minute as in 10 minutes, also for flour, like <laughs> rice flour. This is all over the place. So the top part just means the number eight. These two lines, that means eight. And then this means knife. So there were eight generations that led to the Tower of Babel, and they were divided by the knife. And then here's the, the, the grand finale, the last one. Oops. So this character here, this is all one character. This is traditional Chinese. So this is still in use in Hong Kong and Taiwan, as far as I know. The top part means lamb. That's the sacrificial lamb, of course. And the bottom part is very common. It just means I, or we, or us, or me. It's the pronoun for I. Now, what's really interesting is I means a hand with a spear. And I could never understand why would they write a hand with a spear to, to show me. It makes no sense, right? And this means righteousness. The sacrificial lamb on top of me holding the spear. This is righteousness. And then look at this. Even after the communist cultural revolution, they simplified the Chinese this same character is now a drop of blood on the cross. Hallelujah. How amazing is that? That's amazing. When, okay, when, when, is the, when is the first example 
of uh, Chinese pictographs. What's the first, the earliest example of that? How, what um, date would that be? 2500 BC. So we're talking about something that's contemporaneous with uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics. Um, I think you would know better than me, but yes. Um, uh, and uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics are basically picture, picture writing. So, so a lot, a yeah. lot, of, a lot of the words are, um, a, you know, pictures. Like the word for cat is a picture of a cat and stuff like that. Right, right. So it's a, it's kind of like an intermediary stage between painting, uh, drawing on the wall of a cave, for example, and now drawing on the wall of a temple. Uh, but this is more of a language than simply a, a picture of, let's say, people hunting, men hunting an animal. Right, right. So, yeah, Chinese is very interesting. Um, some of them are pictures, and then they also have a phonetic component. So you can take a picture for one, a one pictograph, and you change a couple strokes to denote a similar word with a, with a different sound. And so there's there's sound and pick and and vi and uh, visual kind of interplaying together. Are you the only one who has ever noticed this, or is there other Chinese scholars who have written about this? Oh no, of course not. <laughs> um, so I heard about this from a, a pastor in Singapore. I think his name is Reverend uh, Kong Li. Anyway, he's on my YouTube channel. And if you just search God in ancient China, it's the first one. There's a full hour that goes through at least a dozen of these characters with the Genesis verses. He's an incredible uh, pastor. It was really moving watching him do that. Gives me goosebumps. Okay. On to the next part, uh, let's make it more relevant, right, to our modern day world, the culture war, etc. So moving on to 1500s in China, Matteo Ricci comes to right. China. Right, right, okay, good, you know of this. This is new to me, but as far as I know, um, Matteo Ricci is a Italian Jesuit missionary, and he, he's also a mathematician, scientist, etc. And he brings Christianity to China, big time. Uh, he's an excellent preacher. He converts no less than 2,500 people to, to Christ. Uh, he's not religious at all. As far as I know, he even dresses as a Taoist and Buddhist monk to fit in. And uh, he can even speak the ancient traditional Chinese language. And he brings back these Chinese scriptures to the West, and he... So am I accurate so far? Accurate in what, about Matteo Ricci? Yes, yeah, just about the, yeah, yeah. the history as far as you know. Okay, yeah, so yeah. then about... Uh, okay, a hundred years later, Emperor Kangxi comes to power, and he's an incredible scholar. He comes to Christ. He makes a royal edict to evangelize to bring all of China to Christ, to Christianity. And uh, what gets in the way? But, uh, what is it, Pope Clement XI and, and the other Western missionaries of that time, they accuse the Chinese of uh, worshiping their ancestors and, you know, their Chinese language is demonic and they're very dogmatic, etc.
Right. So what the ends China, up happening called the, the Chinese rights controversy. Yes, exactly. And so, and in, in one foul sweep, I think that's the right idiom, um, he makes another royal edict to ban all future Western preachers coming to China. So I think this is one of the most significant uh, events in, in recent history. Because imagine China today if it was totally Christian for the past 400 years. We're looking at a totally different humanity, right? Yes, although there is a significant Catholic population in China. Yes, yes, that's true. Both above ground and underground. Mm, yes, that's true. So I do have uh, the exact quote from the emperor, if you'd like to hear it. Yes. The emperor says, quote, I have concluded that the Westerners are petty indeed. It is impossible to reason with them because they do not understand larger issues as we understand them in China. There is not a single Westerner versed in Chinese works, and their remarks are often incredible and ridiculous. To judge from this proclamation, their religion is no different from other small bigoted sects of Buddhism or Taoism. I have never seen a document which contains so much nonsense. From now on, all Westerners should not be allowed to preach in China to avoid further trouble, unquote. And then this is the letter that the, po that the emperor, Emperor Kangxi, sent to the Pope, Pope Clement XI. Quote, you have corrupted your teachings and disrupted the efforts of the former Westerners. This is definitely not the will of your God, for he leads men to good deeds. I have often heard from you Westerners that the devil leads men astray. This must be it, unquote. One of the tragedies of uh, human history. This, this is a uh, uh, hundred years after Matteo Ricci. Right, right. All right, so to make a modern culture war uh, corollary, we have these, um, well, I, I call it like the sin of bad preaching. So, you know, when you're, when you're trying to preach your faith and, you know, sometimes you do a good job, sometimes you do a bad job. But if you do such a bad job that you take away other people from the faith, I, I just want to ask you, like, just just how bad is this? Is this possibly worse than atheism? It's It just seems so terrible to me. It's a tragedy, as you say. So, I don't know, can you talk more on this? Yeah, for, first of all, uh, we're talking about a time when Christendom is now completely divided and engaged in a civil war. And uh, I'm, uh, the situation in Japan was... Uh, basically, uh, you had uh, the Dutch East India Company coming over and trying to monopolize trade with the, the East, and uh, their enemy was the Catholic Church. And so they spread all sorts of uh, slanders about the Catholics, uh, specifically the Jesuits in Japan, and that led to a, uh, a persecution, persecution of the Church in Japan, which is, uh, uh, is it Sosuko Endo covers it in his book Silence, and Martin Scorsese just did a movie based on that that episode in history. In terms wow. of in terms of China, I, it's one of these things I keep thinking. One of these days, I'm going to do some real serious research into the Chinese rights controversy, and up till now, I haven't done it. Uh, so all of the stuff that I know is basically peripheral to something else. But I, I do know that um, Matteo Ricci. 
was very enthused by the concept of Tao at the beginning uh, when he first arrived in China. Uh, and as far as I know, the Genesis is translated in the beginning, there was Tao, which is different than mm. um, all of the Western translations. All are basically in the beginning, there was the word. And that's completely mysterious because no Western language, a modern language, has the richness of ancient Greek, uh, specifically the ancient Greek word logos. And so mm. part of part of why I wrote this book is to resurrect all of the richness of the word logos. But anyway, right, right. Uh, Richie, Richie's uh, optimism faded a after a while. The more he looked into Tao and the more he lo looked into the understanding of Tao, until finally he he started they started uh come across passages which were saying that uh, basically everything came from nothing uh and this was considered the the part of the chinese cosmology well mm, that see. is that is impossible we mm. we with the modern version <laughs> of everything coming from nothing is known as darwinism where yeah. everything comes from nothing okay let's get this straight right now Nothing comes from nothing. <laughs> that which is cannot come from that which is not. This was the great breakthrough that Parmenides made uh, in about the four, uh, sixth century uh, BC, uh, and he, he discovered as a result being. And so apparently, the the Chinese Tao uh, does not contain being. It's not logos because it says everything can come from nothing. Ah, interesting. That's there's some very deep theology there. Of course, as far as the practice of Taoism, much like Buddhism, there's still so much to gain from there. But uh, yeah, the, this, the more this, deep this, and, once you yeah. once you make a mistake like this, it will block intellectual development. You you've there's a roadblock. Every mm -hmm. single society has to get past this roadblock, and the roadblock is that. Uh, nothing can come from nothing. You had this at the beginning of Greek, uh, not Greek philosophy, but let's say Greek mythology with Hesiod. And Hesiod was a contemporary of Homer. Homer was the, the, uh, the man who codified Greek uh, mythology. Uh, it's in the Iliad. And Hesiod said in the beginning there was chaos. Well, if there's chaos in the beginning, then nothing can come other than chaos. Nothing can come out of chaos other than more chaos. So what you have at the beginning of, the, of Genesis is, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. That's creation, okay? Yeah. That, the Greeks did not have a concept of creation. Aristotle was one of the greatest minds in human history, and he couldn't figure out creation. He felt that the universe was eternal. Okay, so first of all, they have creation, but then when the, with the coming of Christianity, St. John goes back and unites the Hebrew and Greek traditions and does a second form of Genesis when he says, in the beginning, uh, there was logos. In other words, there was always order. There was always rationality. There was never a time when there was nothing. Okay, and then he says, and logos was with God which is a completely mysterious sentence. I have no idea what that means until you read the next sentence and then it says, and Logos was God. In other words, uh -huh. Logos, Logos is God. 
Okay, so now those are the three sentences that changed the course of human history. Because up to that time, you had people trying to think things through on their own. And they reached an impasse. The greatest achievement was the Greeks, the early Greeks, and they reached an impasse where basically Aristotle contradicted Plato, and that was the end of philosophy as we know it. But Christianity comes, and suddenly everything gets resurrected. That contradiction gets resolved with those three sentences. Because now Logos, the Greeks, had no idea that there was creation. They had an idea that there was an order to the universe, but they didn't know how it got there. And Mm. so Plato proposed the demiurge, and Aristotle proposed the unmoved mover, and they were contradictory. Mm. The Trinity, Mm. what we're talking about with those three sentences is the Trinity. So the Logos is God, but he's with God at the same time. How can you be God and with God at the same time? Well, the answer is the Trinity. In other words, there are three persons in one God. God the Father begat God the Son. He didn't create God the Son. This was the the mistake of Philo of Alexandria and a lot of other people at that time. He begat God the Son, which means he's on the same level. You are the same level as your father, but your father came before you. Oh, okay. Okay, Okay? and then, then the two of them are in love, God is love. Love is the relationship here. And out of that love, the third person proceeds, the Holy Spirit proceeds from God the Father and God the Son. And that is the begin. That now resolves all of these issues and explains how uh, Logos is part of this world. It's not just uh, isolated forms in a realm all by themselves, which is what Plato was trying to say. It's not a God who is simply off by himself, contemplating himself, self-thinking thought, which is what Aristotle said. It's a God, the Father, who sent God, the Son, who is the demiurge, the man who is the creator, and the reason that there is, he is the Logos incarnate, and that's why there's a Logos in the universe. So Matteo Ricci brings this kind of patrimony to China, he's immediately struck by the similarities between Tao and Logos. But the more he looks oh, into it, mm. the more he looks into it, he's saying, wait a minute. As soon as he sees, you know, something can come from nothing, he's, well, wait a minute, this is not Logos. This is, so what, what, I'm, what I'm seeing here is that something, I, mean, this is, I deal with this later in my book, uh, but Vico, uh, the Italian philosopher, obviously raised as a Catholic, steeped in Catholic tradition, uh, is the first one to really take history seriously. And he's also the first one to take the fall seriously. So he believes that, uh, that God created a man and a woman, that that man and that woman are the father and mother of every single human being on the face of the earth. Okay, that is the Catholic teaching. But something bad happened. And you're, you're already uh, adverting to it in those pictograms. Okay, Adam, uh, Eve ate the apple. She gave it to Adam. They sinned. This was such a, a, a horrendous sin because they had no mm-hmm. inclination. We all have a natural inclination to sin. They didn't. Mm-hmm. And so their sin was so horrendous, it infected the entire human race to this day. And so as a result, oh. what happened? You lost something. Now, this is where you get into this big, complicated discussion that probably has something to do with China and Japan at this time, because Calvinism said 
that you were totally depraved and you lost everything and you were you were completely uh helpless and you had to be saved by grace alone this is luther this is calvin refining luther and so on and so forth the catholic position was never that the catholic position was always that uh, original sin was a, a catastrophe but the, the human nature was not obliterated it was wounded and because it's only wounded it's clear that every single human being has some type of primordial memory about all of the things that we're talking about. And so it's entirely oh. possible. It's entirely possible that something as ancient as the Chinese language could have uh, put representations of that primal memory into the language. Now that, that would not explain, that would explain Genesis it would not explain Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ obviously had was yet to come. There are prophecies of Jesus Christ in the Hebrew scriptures, but uh, uh, that's something I would have to think about a little bit more. But all of these languages, every single language, uh, this, I'm saying this because at the end of the 19th century, you had a huge outburst of anthropological and archaeological discovery. Uh, Schliemann discovered uh, Troy, I think it was in 1879. Everyone was fired up. Oh, Indiana Jones is basically an archaeologist. That's, that's a remnant from that era when mm. there were, you were on the verge of all of these great discoveries of prehistoric uh, man. And it's clear uh, from these discoveries that this is when uh, uh, William Jones was in India. He discovered that Sanskrit was an Indo-European language. They started creating the Indo-European language dictionary. Mm. Uh, an exciting period uh, to be an anthropologist or an archaeologist. But what they found is that basically every single language had a word for God. And every mm, single language, uh, every single language had a concept that God was the father and that he lived in the sky. It was the sky god who was a father. And, and at this point, uh, they, they went down the blind alley that is known as mythology because they started speculating, well, if he's, got a, uh, if he's a father, he must have a beard. If he's got a beard, he must have a wife. And you're completely, at that point, you lost all contact with what God had to be. And it was only, as I said, uh, with Aristotle and Plato that they recovered that notion of God, what really God had to be if he were, if we were to be God. So it's entirely possible that all of these ancient languages and cultures would retain some type of remnant of that knowledge that Adam and Eve, Eve had of God. It's possible. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm saying, and, this, and Vico is the one who, who really made this plausible and created, as a result, the, the uh, science of philology, which took off in Germany during the 19th century. And that led to archaeology and anthropology. So it all flowed from that. But I think that what we're seeing is that there was a, a, there's a plausible explanation of how these ancient languages could retain the knowledge that Adam and Eve had of God. Wow. There's a lot there. Um, so love is really important to, in, in, in all of this. So I, I'm wondering... Where does love fit in with Logos and with God? 
Okay, the, the, again, the document is the, the Gospel of St. John and the Epistle of St. John. So he says, in the beginning there was Logos, Logos was with God, and Logos is God. At another point he says, God is love. Well, you don't, if you're a logician, you can say, okay, Logos is God, God is love, Logos is love. In other words, that principle mm. of order <laughs> is active. It's not a stat. The, the whole, all of Greece. Oh, is you see what okay. I'm saying? Gre Greece. Yeah, uh, yeah. The uh, the thing that best symbolizes Greek thought to me is geometry. It's static. Mm. It's static and it's two dimensional. Okay, and yeah. so John, because now God has entered history, uh, suddenly history has a meaning. History always had a meaning to the Hebrews because they were always looking for the Messiah, but it didn't mean anything to the Greeks. They, they had Herodotus, Thucydides. Herodotus believed everything. Anybody told him, if there's a guy down the street that has two heads, Herodotus would have said, yeah, that's true. Some Egyptian told me a guy had two heads. There's no sense that history has a meaning, okay? And now what you're saying here is that history has a meaning and that the energy of both the physical universe and history is love. Because love is motion, and mm. and and also uh, by the time you get to Augustine, Saint Augustine, he says, "Grab love is gravity." Now, when you we associate the word gravity with Isaac Newton, mm. and it's this it's this abstract force because Isaac Newton is a return to paganism. He was mm, an course, alchemist. Yeah. He got the principles of his universe's cosmology. He got them from, uh, uh, who is it there? Love and Strife. Who was the one who came up with love? Empedocles. He got the idea of love and strife from Empedocles. He changed it into gravity and inertia, and he made a mechanistic universe. But if you go back to a guy like Augustine, he says gravity is love. And in, in a sense, that makes sense because gravity is what holds the entire universe together. So in this earlier vision, you have this cosmic love which embraces everything and holds everything together, and, but it's dynamic because it keeps it in motion as well. And that's a much more sophisticated understanding of gravity and love and logos than anything proposed by Newton or anybody in the scientific tradition after him. Yes, much more sophisticated indeed. Um, next, I want to talk about baptism. Um, you've said in other interviews that, uh, especially I think for modern Western young men like myself, to, to fully come back to Logos, we should get baptized. Yes. Um, so my basic question for me personally is, well, first, I mean, all right. <laughs> Can I get baptized and continue to chant Hare Krishna? Well, what do you mean when you chant Hare Krishna? What do you mean? Um, what are you saying? What are you saying? Well, it's, it's, it's really hard to translate, but basically I'm saying, Hello, God. I love you, God. Give me into your service, God, etc. Well, if that's you what know? you mean, if that's what you mean by Hare Krishna, of course you can say that as a Catholic. I've run into this issue more with Islam than with uh, Hinduism, okay? And the issue uh, is Allah. Well, what does Allah mean? Well, Allah is the Arabic word for God. 
So right, right. Uh, do do uh, so when I say Allah, can I say Allah Akbar? Can I say God is great? Well, of course I can. Okay, I'm not a Muslim, but I, I could say that if I were speaking Arabic. Every time I say the word God, I would be saying Allah. I think it goes deeper than that because uh, unlike Hinduism, um, Islam is a monotheistic religion, which means we we are worshiping one God. Well, if there's only one God, then we're worshiping the same God. Now, I get into all kinds of trouble with Catholics whenever I say this, this even though it is the <laughs> official position of the Catholic Church, but it's just the logical corollary of monotheism. Obviously, mm -hmm. if you're worshiping one God, you're worshiping the same God. What's the difference? Yes, between, yes. What's the difference between Islam and Catholicism. Well, uh, the understanding of God and the main difference in our understanding of God is what I just talked about, namely the Trinity. Okay, Islam got its idea of God from Nestorianism. They got its, their idea of God, Jesus Christ from Nestorianism, which said that Jesus was a creature. That's heretical. That's not true. And uh, the problem here is, okay, you can say, okay, who cares about all this heresy, blah, blah, blah. The problem with the anybody now, including the Islamic world, is if you don't understand, come to an understanding of the Trinity, a metaphysical understanding of the Trinity, insofar as that is possible, history will pass you by. And that's precisely what happened to Islam. Why The big question in the history of science is why didn't, science develop in the Islamic world? And the one word answer to that question is the Trinity. They simply didn't understand the relationship between God and creation. And so as a result, there was there's no secondary causality because they don't understand Jesus Christ and the incarnation as the vehicle of secondary causality. And so as a result, mm. God has to do everything. So I got into mm -hmm. a discussion with a mullah in Mashhad who basically said, you know, uh, the wheel, how did, uh, you know, we were in Golestan. How did the wheel come about? Well, I was trying to explain how that could come about naturally. He said, no, no, a prophet explained how to create the wheel. I said, a prophet? This is like 13,000 B.C. How come, where there were no prophets around? No, a prophet did because, in effect, God is the sole causal agent. There is final causality. There's no efficient causality in Islam. And as a result, science could not develop there. Now, to go to Hinduism, this is a different situation, a completely different situation, because you have 33 million gods in India. Okay? Wait, wait, wait. One sec there. So, uh, my... Alright, Hinduism is, you know, it's, it's basically a nonsense word. Because not only are there 33 million gods, there's so many different sects and ways to practice. Now, mine is called Vaishnavism, which means I worship Vishnu as the one god. Okay. It's totally monotheistic, and as far as I know, it's the most personal monotheism out there. We okay. know exactly what God looks like, his skin color, his, the length of his arms, what he said, etc. Now, wait. Now, wait. We are on the right track now. We, God has to be one. Okay, there is yes, no yes. way around that. The, the, yes. the only question is, how is he one? That's, yes, that's, yes. that's where, that's where and, and when you tell me that Vishnu, you can tell the color of his hair and so on and so forth, uh, that reminds me of Jesus Christ, except that I don't know the color of Jesus' hair. I don't know the color of his eyes. 
because the the descriptions we have of his life on earth never got around to saying that. So mm-hmm. then the I, I understand. Uh, let me back off there. Tell me how you know the color of Vishnu's eyes or the color of his hair. Well, it's revealed in the scriptures. So, but let me also just say, by Vishnu, Vishnu is the one God, but Vishnu, of course, has many avatars, many incarnations. So we believe the Buddha is an avatar of Vishnu. Krishna and Rama and Chaitanya, they are all avatars and personal incarnations of Vishnu. So they are, they are actually not... They are non-different from Vishnu, but they are... Uh, so, I mean, it's like when the Buddha or Krishna comes on this earth, his body is not material. Although you can see him within our material plane, it's still, um, it's still Vishnu. It's still God. But, um, yeah, he has many, he has, you know. And so a lot of these 33 million gods, some of them are demigods, and some of them are avatars or incarnations, but right. it's it's all umbrellaed under Vishnu, in, right. in my in my you know right. sect. So you've so got the one and you've got the many. Okay, that that's that's, yeah. that's how the Greeks would would explain that. Uh, also, there, there's um there's a very powerful verse in Sanskrit. It's in my notes somewhere. We we talk about the inconceivable oneness and difference. Sorry, the simultaneous inconceivable oneness and difference. Right. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. And the question good, is what good. how 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 Vishnu could uh, fulfill that. I I suspect I suspect that this is a, a later development and I suspect that what we're talking about here is people who have heard about Christianity. Because as far as I know, there was no resolution of this issue uh, until Christianity came along. Now, Hindu, the Hindu culture uh, was ancient. I mean, it's one of the, the ancient, right, right. ancient cultures in the world. And uh, there were people like uh, uh, Father uh, Wilhelm Schmidt, who was a great anthropologist, uh, did a lot of work in Melanesia and Polynesia. Uh, but uh, part of what they they talked about was you. He said that, that uh, anthropology was crippled by Darwinism, because Darwinism always felt things, things got better. And every everybody at that age, the late nineteenth century, is interpreting everything according to a Darwinist paradigm. When the the he's saying the opposite took place. So he's saying that the more primitive culture you have, the more monotheistic. And the more uh, uh, that that polytheism is always a later development, and then he says, "Well, why did why would polytheism develop? Well, it's because, precisely because of the problem that we've already discussed. Okay, in order to be God, God has to be completely transcendent, which means he can, he he is not any part of this earth. That's the only way he can create something outside of himself is he's completely independent of it." which is what he did. If he's completely independent of it, why should he care about me? <laughs> right? I mean, I'm right, completely right. insignificant here, and I'm one of a, a billion Indians, and why should he care about me? And at this point, you, you reach an intolerable universe, and at that point you say, there must be someone out there who cares about me, and then you start to invent your own gods. 
And at this point, there's something even more. Uh, you realize that you have desires. You say your prayers to God. You don't know whether he's hearing your prayers. Don't know whether he's listening at all. And on top of that, you're, you have desires that no God will ever permit because God is all good. And you'd really like to sleep with your neighbor's wife. Well, you can't really pray to God. It's not going to work, you know. But if there are these intermediary creatures or demigods or whatever they are, uh, well, they, they are out there. There are such things out there. They're called angels. Actually, they're called fallen angels because of the fall. They're demons. And they're happy to answer this type of prayer because they want to get you involved in sin. And so as a result, you create a whole pantheon of gods who will listen to your illicit desires, especially if you make sacrifices to him. And so the sacrifice, it has to be something that you care about, and it gradually escalates to the point where the thing you care about most is your children. So if you want what you want, sacrifice your children. And so as a result, you end up with human sacrifice all around the world. Uh, the Aztecs are probably the most notorious example, but this is the way, this is a complete deterioration of man's in, uh, kind of innate understanding of God. And I suspect this is what happened in India, okay? Because you have the most gods in the world in India. <laughs> you, you had, if you go to the, uh, the Vedas, which is the most ancient Indian document, you have a concept called Urta, R-T-A. And that's similar to, to Logos. All of these ideas came into being around the same time, around the 8th century BC, around the time of Buddha, all around the same time. Uh, and it fell like the seed. It was the, the seed that fell on barren soil. It didn't develop. The only place it developed by itself on its own was Greece. Every culture had like Tao, Irta, I could, uh, there's probably other words I can use. I've forgotten them in other languages. Mm. They all fell on, uh, on barren soil. They did not develop. In their place, you had this polytheism, the most, uh, what should I say, the more gods than any place else in the world or India, uh, and Irta was basically forgotten and lost. That's pretty much development. So I think there's a, a trinity in my own faith. Now, by by Trinity, what do we mean? Uh, like the number three, for example, I see all over the place in the right. Bhagavad Gita, in my book Ethos. Like the number three is everywhere. But as far as like a holy Trinity to describe God, I think we actually have a totally comparable conception. So we have Bhagavan. That's the supreme personality of Godhead. That's like the the as the highest. God. Good enough. And then we have Paramatma. That's the super soul. This is like the Holy Spirit. So the super soul is, is within every living entity, every bacteria, every human. It's sitting right next to the eternal soul and it's witnessing what the, the soul is doing and guiding it and uh, etc. And then there's the Brahma Jyoti, which is the impersonal radiance of God. And that's kind of what like a, a Buddhist or a, like especially a Zen Buddhist is, is after. They're going after this Brahma Jyoti, this impersonal um, radiance coming from the sun, so to speak. So do you think that that is 
has the same uh, effect or utility as the the Catholic Christian Holy Trinity? Oh, if you're talking in terms of utility, uh, which means getting results, uh, uh, the the answer is no. Okay, but if you're talking about the, 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 there is an explanation for this. It's called uh, it's p- p- what I've already talked about that there we are one human race that comes from two people that has some type of supernatural understanding of God in a way that we will never have it. And there, there are traces of the Trinity that have been pa- not, not just passed on in terms of these ideas in language, but also in nature itself. So you would have uh, what, they're call- what the Greeks call them is uh, logoi spermatikoi. Ratios seminalis in Latin. These are uh, uh, fertile words. What should I say? Sperm. Uh, s- seminal words. In other <laughs> words, words that can kind of, uh, concepts that are there. And the Trinity is part of nature because it's a, it's a manifestation of the Trinity of God and God created that nature so it's obvious that there's going to be some aspect of the creator in nature itself. And so the question would be, well, where, where is it? Well, where is it? And uh, you could say, well, what about a shamrock? That's what St. Patrick said. You know, it's like three and one. But I think the, uh, uh, the most, the, the principle, uh, let, let, me, let me back up here. Hegel understood this. I deal with Hegel in the book. Hegel says that, the motion of history is basically dialectical and it means it's in three parts. So there's thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Ansich, Fursich, An und Fursich, and that is the mechanism of human history. That's complicated by a long, complicated thing that I won't get into here, but I'm saying Luther screwed up his own uh, insight into the, the Trinity uh, because of his uh, reliance on Lutheran theology. But there is the, the closest manifestation that I would say of the Trinity in the world that we live in, the natural world, is the family. Because as I said, God the Father begat God the Son. And that's the only analogy you can use is human procreation. You're always going to get in trouble if you try and use uh, human terms, natural terms, to describe something that's completely supernatural. But the one place where it does work is the family. Father begetting son, and then father and son coming together in love, and out of that proceeds the Holy Spirit. That's the human family. And that means, to get to the point of this, that the human family is the best expression of ultimate reality in the world. And the book that I wrote talks about this in conflict. I'm saying love is the ultimate reality. And the family and the Trinity are both expressions of love. And that is on the right track. And the wrong track is the one that was taken by Democritus in science, which says that ultimate reality is little balls bumping into each other or big balls spinning around the sun or whatever, however you want to describe it. That is known as materialism. It's a dead end and it's been a a tragedy for human history uh, ever since uh, Democritus came up with the idea of atoms in the void. 
So what you're saying is, I need to make some babies in the name of God. Is, is, that's it? That's a good idea. That's always a good idea. That's always. I, uh, I'm telling everyone to do this. I've been telling 20-year-olds <laughs> to turn off their computers, uh, find a woman, uh, get married, have children. So I'm, you're right. I've been telling people, everyone to do this. Because that's the closest way, the closest we can come to imitating God on this yeah, earth. Yeah. Because it's creation. Well, I, it's procreation, okay? But it's it's a form of creation, and that's the one attribute that God has. He creates something out of nothing. He created the entire universe out of nothing. And when we uh, beget father children, when we beget children, we're close to imit we're imitating God. That's as close as we can. I don't want to get into theology here, but on a natural level, that's as close as you can get. Mm, fair enough. Wow. So I was thinking about, I'm always thinking about East and West as I'm a Westerner living in the East. Um, it seems like Logos is an excellent summary of the West. Um, and it, for the East, it seems like the East is Dharma. You, you know that word. I, Tell I me again. I've heard the word many times. Tell me what Dharma is. So Dharma can mean duty, can mean religion, can mean law. Uh, but Oh, but also Dharma refers to like the platonic form so the dharma uh the dharma of fire is heat and light and the dharma of man is essentially self-realization using that's, rationality that's form to, that's 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 what plato would call form so ba yeah, basically yeah. basically uh and the, and the best example of form would be uh the soul is the form of the body the soul is the form mm. of the body and uh, what uh, Plato uh, didn't understand, that's Aristotle's definition. Plato felt that the soul was an, uh, an angel living inside a machine called the body. Uh, he mm. said it was like a pilot in a ship. That's a, a, a crude uh, misunderstanding of the soul. The soul, when he says form, he means first act, which means uh, if the soul, if the body were a hatchet, the soul would be chopping. If the body, right, right. if the body were an eye, the soul would be seeing. That's a very mm. sophisticated concept, and it seems similar to what you're saying when you talk about dharma. Okay, so um, going on with, uh, along with that, um, you've also said before that um, uh, well, Islamic countries, also India. Persia, China, these these uh, Eastern nations, especially that that didn't get logos. They their their development was stalled, right? Now, is that just like from a economic perspective? Is there or is there more than that? Because what what I see from living in Asia for all these years is that they're they're actually superior to us in terms of uh, family and um religion and work i mean not always like of course the germans and you know we have some excellent workers in the west but um and and morals like the the easterner the eastern nations can maintain their moral order for much longer i think than the west and it's like sure in the west we have all this like great uh power innovation but in my home country of America, I mean, it's so degraded. I like right. even. You're right. You're right. So the the big question is, what do you mean by the West? What do you mean? 
do you, do you mean Michel Foucault or do you mean St. Thomas Aquinas? Uh, this, you, you invariably run into this when you go to a country like uh, Iran, where I've been for a number of times, or you go to a country like India, where I've also, I've also been there. And they'll say the West. Well, the West has been in a civil war ever since the Reformation. Yeah. And so what do you, and, and there has been a trajectory of, uh, the West was created by Logos. The West was a manifestation of Logos. And this ever-increasing awareness of Logos up until when? Well, William of Ockham. <laughs> how, how about that? Up to the 13th century, you know, all of the uh, impediments were external. And at a certain, now you've got internal impediments. You've got a tradition of anti-Logos. And the main, I'd say the main proponent of anti-Logos in the West was Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, there are still, I, uh, they tell me there are still people who call themselves Lutherans to this day. That's 500 years now. <laughs> 500 years of, of bad theology is going to have an effect on this thing we call the West. And so who is the logical uh, conclusion of Luther? Well, I'd say it's Nietzsche. I'd say it's Hegel, it's Nietzsche, and, they, and Nietzsche hated Logos. It's obvious. He, he was a, yeah, a philologist. Yeah. He knew Greek. He hated Logos. He hated Socrates. He hated what he called Christ Socrates. That's shorthand for Logos. So what's the West? What do you mean by the West? We are the best and the worst. Ah, uh, yes, exactly. That's that's exactly how I pictured it in my head. The, 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 the top and the bottom, and then this slow and steady kind of engine that just bumbles along. That's the East. It's really boring, actually, but it, well, it, it's I mean, really good at maintaining and sustaining. Yeah, look, look at, so you look at, a, uh, at, at Islam, for example. They're off in the desert by themselves, and they preserve a traditional culture. So there's this, all this argument about uh, the women in, in Iran. Should they be forced to wear the hijab, which is a head covering? Well, that's traditional dress. We have we're we're used to people walking around half naked here, and and yeah, uh, yeah. we don't understand traditional dress here. No woman would ever at the time of the 19th century, no woman would ever go out of the house without with her head uncovered. No man mm. would go out of the house without wearing without wearing a hat. So yep. we've got this completely distorted notion of what normal is. Yep, definitely. Oh, so much logos. What's next? Um, well, maybe we can uh, bridge into my book on ethos. Um, so, do you ever watch uh, Ravi Zacharias? No. So he's he's a Christian apologist. I don't know if he's Catholic or or not, but um, he talks a lot about how a moral law implies a moral lawgiver, hence right. God. Right. Now, if you know, because I really want to build bridges between, let's say, the Church of Christ, the Church of Krishna, and also agnostics, seculars, and theists, and hopefully atheists, although that's more difficult. So if instead of, we, instead of uh, an absolute moral law that we need to follow, what if instead we have a moral system where the implication is just being human as part of the human system that is humanity. So that's what my book is trying to do, is make a system and not an absolute kind of law. The, the system has to be based on an absolute law. 
an absolute moral law because the uh, logos, it's logos. The logos of action is called practical reason. It's another word for morality. There are certain absolutes here that you cannot get around. People want to get around them all the time, but you cannot get around them. So yes, what what what? So the point the point of the the discussion we're having now is that there are people all over the world who are in communication with each other, and they're trying to come up with some type of understanding of how is this possible? What is the operating system that allows us to talk together? It's it's internet. It's the English language. But is there something deeper than that? And I'm saying yes, there is. It's called logos, and I describe that in all of its ramifications in the book that I've written. So it is absolute. That's There's no way to get around it. It is absolute. Uh, people have uh, understanding of it that is confused, but that doesn't change the nature of Logos, which is immutable uh, uh, principles in the mind of God. Okay, so what are those absolute moral laws at the a metaphysical ground, so to speak. What are those absolute laws, and how do you express them without God to an agnostic? You cannot to an express atheist? them without God, you, because God is not an article of faith. God is an article of reason. I, I, <laughs> I agree I, I, with I, that. Yeah. I, I prove. I will prove. I did this to an Indian boy, but I basically prove that there has to be a God. So we have to start with the existence of God. Okay, and God is the source of all th all things that are good uh, and true. These are the transcendentals. Every action we make is to achieve the good, uh, because we were created that way by God. Okay, so how do you achieve the good as an individual? That's called ethics. There are certain rules that you have to follow based on your existence as a human being. So you have a body. The body has certain Organs, the organs have a certain logos. So if you want to be achieve the good in terms of your stomach, you have to limit the amount of food you take in. According to rational principles, you have to limit the amount of drink you take in, especially if it's Temperance. alcoholic. Otherwise, you will lose your rationality. Same thing is true of sexuality. Sexuality has a logos to it. Uh, it's, it's created uh, to, uh, for procreation. Okay, that's how you achieve, you follow these laws and you, that's how you achieve the good as an individual. As, as, a, as a family, you, or, uh, uh, you, it's according to, uh, you would call it, the Greeks call it economics or the law of the household or uh, what we would call economics in some sense or other. And then finally, the, the final way you achieve the good is part of a state and that's known as politics. So these are the three ways that you achieve the good. So uh, a lot of what you were, like, as far as limiting how we eat and sex and all this stuff, that's all covered by uh, Aristotle's virtue ethics. Right. But at, at no point does Aristotle mention God. So um, well, what do I do with that? <laughs> well, he did, it wasn't clear to him what the God's relationship was to creation. That's why he didn't mention it. That's all been cleared up by the Trinity and the Incarnation. So, but, but, but he was smart enough to understand. I mean, Aristotle's understanding of ethics was basically uh, uh, archery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically, you know, <laughs> you have the bow and arrow, there's a target, 
you can miss it by going to one side or miss it by going to the other. The idea is to go right down the middle so you can be someone who laughs too much, in which case you're a buffoon, or you're someone who doesn't laugh at all, and that's wrong too. You have to go right down the middle. That's that's the whole point of the Nicomachean ethics. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. Um, uh, my next uh, question here uh, is unbelievably consequential and personal to me. And I've seen uh, Owen Benjamin talk about this a little bit recently. Uh, when, when we see someone who acts like an animal, let's say, or like a zombie, or like a demon, or an NPC, maybe you've heard of that meme, um, wh what does this mean? Are, are they really that thing? Even like if we can prove whatever, are they really that thing? If so, if not, how do we treat someone when, when we really uh, perceive them to be in like a different metaphysical category? Does that make sense? Well, you can't be in a different metaphysical category. Everyone is a ra every man is a rational creature. We all have the same identity uh, in terms of uh, what our nature is. But Metaphysically, you, yes, you, yes. Yeah, be, uh, but you can corrupt that nature by choosing evil right, repeatedly. Right to the point where uh, you're not pleasant to be around. Now, the, be the best thing that happens here is that they are not happy being around themselves either. And so oftentimes they come out of it and they realize, I'm miserable, why am I miserable? We saw this just uh, this past month with men, young men who are addicted to pornography and are completely disgusted with themselves. And they're looking for a way out. You help them by explaining them what this is, which is basically that pornography is a form of control. And uh, there is a way out. And the way out is, is the Logos. There is, you can have a successful life if reason controls your passions. Pornography is created, has been created to have passion overwhelm your reason. And that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, well, you're preaching to the choir. I can't. I agree with everything, but good, um, good. I got, I got to, I got to <laughs> shut down here because I got to do something. But we've been doing, we've been at this for over an hour, and uh, I think we've had a, a meeting of the minds here. I think East has met yeah. West here. I, I hope so. That was one of my main intentions in uh, in contacting you. And uh, I'm, I mean, obviously, I'm not a hundred percent Eastern, but yeah. Good. I've still got a, like a whole bunch more questions, but you know, I, I guess we're both a bit more a bit tired. So yeah, we can call it a, call it a day call and, it a day and a and morning. We can, we can come back and and do it a second time if you want. That would be really excellent. Thank you so much. You're welcome. My pleasure. Okay. Take care. God bless. Thank you.